You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand. The Blaze Radio Network. On Demand. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand. On the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome to all of you happy warriors, eager devotees of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, spiritually grounded in everything that is life-affirming, devoted to your faith, your families, your finances, and your friends, knowing that you can triumph over those who both intentionally and unknowingly promote a dark abyss of satanic secular socialism and all the many social pathologies that it generates. When I promise to reveal how the world really works, it's in the hope that you will help defeat those pathetic creatures of modern secular fundamentalism, those orphans in history who possess neither Christian fortitude nor even pagan ferocity, which would almost be welcome. Those hideous hermaphrodites and fanatical feminists running our media, education, government bureaucracies, who possess neither the strength of men nor the intuitive wisdom of women, but what damage they manage to inflict. But never fear, here on the Rabbi Daniel Appen Show, I, your rabbi, solemnly commits to help you transform timidity to triumph. Together, we will replace diffidence with determination and displace the divided counsels of doubt with the steady eyes and firm hearts of those who, just like us, know where they are going and know just how they are going to get there. Yes, we strive for success, first with our families and our faith, and then our finances and our friends, forming bonds of the like-minded, after which we will be ready to take on the formidable task of saving our frighteningly fragile civilization from those who would force us to surrender our freedoms and our souls to the whims and dictates of those who consider themselves to be our superiors, our elites, our betters, our bosses, and our rulers. Look, there's no question about it. It is much better off. We are better off being in a country, part of a society, that is economically strong. One of the benefits of being in an economically strong society is that an economically strong society has the wherewithal to also be militarily strong. And to be militarily strong is always an advantage. Just ask those people who, in the summer of 1940, in English villages and towns all up and down the United Kingdom, they watched Nazi fighter pilots in the sky over their heads, doing their utmost 
to prepare their island nation for invasion of the Hun. Just speak to the folks in Holland who uh, to this day are still very aware of how vulnerable they are to invasion because when Nazi Germany invaded them, it feels like only yesterday. To this day, where uh, Jewish families in the United States of America often give their children biblically rooted names or uh, ethnic Jewish ethnic-sounding names, that's very much a trend in America these days. Uh, people use ethnically identifiable names for their children, and in the United States, I don't think any Jewish couple thinks twice, you know, before uh, naming their, uh, their son Moishi for Moses or Yitzi for Isaac or any other Jewish name, many, many examples. In Holland, that never happens. To this day, 70 years later, they still don't do it. Why? Because they are frightened of their children being identified as Jewish, right? Because... If you don't live in a militarily powerful nation, the fear of invasion is very real. And for those of us bred in the comfort and plush surroundings of middle-class lifestyles in America where we've never had to deal with anything even remotely resembling that, uh, it's hard to imagine the reality of invasion. And so to, to live in a strong country, it's, it's very advantageous. And a strong country uh, means a country that has economic strength because without economic strength, it is almost impossible to mount a, a, any kind of an effective army. Uh, the exceptions are where guerrilla fighting has taken place, and that's almost invariably on the territory of the uh, invaded. So, for instance, uh, the Vietnam War was a calamity for America, but for two reasons. The first and most important reason was a loss of civilian will. Uh, the country had lost its will, and our political and military leadership uh, started doing something that is not the job of militaries. They were thinking of all kinds of things, or in fact, almost everything, except the pulverization and obliteration of the enemy. And, uh, and so as a result, America paid the price. Additionally, uh, the uh, Chinese and the Vietnamese were very effective at mounting uh, uh, guerrilla operations. Uh, Fidel Castro's takeover of, of, um, of Cuba was again a financially weaker force defeating a financially more powerful force, but again, uh, the, the, uh, the, the environment suited uh, guerrilla conditions, again, for, for a number of reasons, including the hearts of, uh, of uh, many Cubans that had already been lost by the existing government of Batista. And so, uh, generally speaking, though, you can really rely on this very simple truth about how the world really works. And that is that a financially more successful nation uh, is much more threatening than a financially weaker nation. Uh, and in, in general, a nation with a stronger economy will beat a nation with a weaker economy. 
So uh, you might think about think about 1938 for a moment, would you? Um, what was the United Kingdom's gross national product in 1938? Let's let's count it in in current dollars just to be consistent, shall we? Uh, so the UK's gross national product back then was about 25 billion dollars. Okay, sounds like a lot of money. How about Germany? Germany's GDP in 1938 in the same dollars was double, 50 billion. Okay, so that sort of helps you see why Hitler wasn't terribly worried about making war with England. But um, it's not only that. You see, the ability to have a strong economy depends admittedly on, on um, uh, uh, the GDP, but that in turn also depends on population. I'm not talking about per capita GDP, how much each individual does, because within any uh, cohesive environment, by and large, most people uh, produce on average about the same. So, for instance, uh, the population of Georgia is about eight times the population of Rhode Island, two states in the United States. So when we then discover that the gross domestic product of Georgia is about eight times that of uh, of uh, Rhode Island. So, yeah, that makes sense, right, because that that's pretty much how it works. Now, it wasn't always like that. Um, you know, many people make the case that the wealth of the United States was built on the backs of slaves. Well, uh, the, the tragedy of slavery notwithstanding, that's simply not true. And an easy way uh, to see that it's not true, and it's one that has been cited by economists for 100 years already, is very simple, and that is if it was true that having slaves was a huge economic benefit, then the southern states should have had far stronger economies than the northern states. And the proof is exactly the reverse. Uh, the truth is that enslaving people is uh, a really dumb way uh, of building an economy. It doesn't work well. And, um, and sure enough, when when you allow people the full extent of their creativity in a free environment, they'll be many, many, many times more productive and creative than people who are enslaved. And, um, and, and so within a society, you can see certain things. In between different societies, you also see things. So, for instance, um, Israel has a GDP of, um, of about the same as the aggregate GDP of uh, Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon altogether, even though the latter group of four Arab nations cons uh, consists of f uh, about 100 million people, and the population of Israel is about 5 million people. So really, the GDP of those nations should have been about 20 times. Uh, yeah, but there are other factors involved as well, having to do with culture and social capital that I'll talk about. But um, but if if you've got... A, generally speaking, a, a large population, and you make war with a much smaller population, the odds are you're going to do well, not because you'll be able to fight man for man until the last men standing are on your side because you've got many. No, of course not. Uh, but because in a functioning and successful economy, the more people you've got working, the more is the gross domestic product and the better the uh, financial ability of that country to wage war. So as I already told you, in 1938, uh, Germany's 
uh, GDP was about 50 billion, and the United Kingdom about half of that, 25 billion. How about population size? Well, in 1938, Germany was 90 million people in their population, 90 million. England, about 50 million people. That's a huge difference. And so, again, Hitler looked 90 million people, um, you know, producing a gross domestic product of $50 billion, launching a war which England would probably join and uh, declare war against Germany. But England was a population of about half that of Germany and a gross domestic product, again, not surprisingly, half that of Germany. An easy battle. And sure enough, as you well know, uh, it, it, things just continually looked worse and worse for England until, that's right, Hitler's biggest nightmare, G United States declared war on Japan and Germany. Now let's look at the Japan at the United States numbers. Well, you know already, uh, Hitler looked at them too. And, he, and if he didn't, I mean, I don't know that he did, but I do know that there were many smart Germans at the time who looked and said, it's all over. Why? What did they look at? Well, they said, don't forget, remember I told you Germany was 19 million people in 1938. Well, in uh, December 1941, uh, the United States was 150 million people. Okay, <laughs> it's a huge difference. 90 million versus the um, versus 100, uh, 90 million versus 150 million. And the uh, economy of the United States, GDP of the United States then, uh, close, in fact, a little bit more, almost double, I should say, uh, that of Germany. So when America joins the war, yes, things are, in fact, looking absolutely terrible for Germany, as you'd expect. And so, bottom line, uh, what I'm talking about here is that uh, if you're part of a country that has a great, strong economy, then you really are better off than being part of a country that has a terrible economy. You really are. It's, it's just a much, much more satisfactory sort of situation to find yourself in. And one of the advantages is, of course, the ability of your country to uh, project military power for either offensive or defensive purposes. But uh, all of it depends on the economy. So really, the question we're asking is, what is it that makes a country's economy? Now, I've told you one of the answers. One of the answers is population. And that means that a whole lot of people who know as well as I do what I've just told you start saying, ah, you see, that's the rationale of bringing in immigrants. You want to know why Germany and, and England and France and Norway and Sweden, you know why we need immigrants? Because an economy is proportional to population. <laughs> Not so quick. It may seem from what I've told you it is. But I've only told you one factor about the strength of an economy, and the truth is that there are really two. One of them is population. Number two is even more important. And I speak of this now because, um, well, it's an area that America has neglected for a number of decades already. And uh, the price is to be paid unless we do something about it. Let me explain exactly what this is just as soon as we come back. For now, 
um, let me uh, divert from my usual pattern. I usually tell you that the website is rabbidaniellappin.com, but now I want to tell you uh, the website is aajc.org, the American Alliance of Jews and Christians. The American Alliance of Jews and Christians is aajc.org, and uh, you can easily navigate over to the right page. If you have any sympathy or um, empathy with the purposes of the American Alliance of Jews and Christians, then you might be willing to participate in our summer fundraising appeal. Uh, Whatever your heart feels called to donate would be enormously appreciated by all of us here at the American Alliance of Jews and Christians and all those groups that ally with us in defending the foundation of civilization. All of that at aajc.org and uh, search for the page, the donate page or any of the other pages, and uh, we very much appreciate anything you feel called to do. Okay, quick break, and then I, your rabbi, back with you here. Don't go away. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and Retirement Curveball is a book by a finance expert that I respect, Dr. Tom McPhee. Whether you are thinking about retirement, are already retired, or have never given the big R even a thought, now is the time to welcome the contents of this book into your mind. The book is filled with compelling aha moments and will motivate you to make some highly effective changes in how you manage your money and your life. I know Dr. Tom McPhee and his terrific book, Retirement Curveball, and I do recommend it. Get the book at retirementcurveball.com or on Amazon. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of How the World Really Works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Hi, everybody. Your rabbi, that's me, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Yes, we're back. Continuing the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show uh, with a permanent principle that I want to commend to your attention and uh, strongly urge you to keep in mind always. And that is that real life and the truth are far more accurately conveyed by means of a video than by means of a picture. In other words, it is really helpful in your developing a wise outlook whether it's in child raising, whether it's marriage-wise, whether it's in your business affairs, or even whether it's in politics, it always is important to remember that the present must never be looked at in isolation. We must always look at the past and the future. And we've got to be able to extrapolate. We've got to be able to look at things that are happening today or maybe things as they are today and say, instead of saying, oh, we're living in wonderful time. Everything is terrific. we got to say, wait a sec, what was it like 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40, 50, 60 years ago? Let's watch the trend over the last few decades. Let's see what's happening now, and then we can project reasonably into the future. The example I'm very fond of is an example I came up with a few years ago, where I said, look, uh, if I showed you two photographs, each one of them depicting Um, a a happy-looking couple in one another's arms gazing longingly into each other's eyes. It doesn't tell you anything. It's just, you know, two happy couples. 
But it's quite possible that one of those couples is a couple that has been happily and faithfully married for 15 years and is devoted to to one another and to their children and to their future. And the other couple are each married to somebody else. And this photograph was taken during an afternoon of illicit bliss at the local no-tell motel. The photograph doesn't tell you anything. But if we had a video of the last few hours or the last few days, we'd quickly be able to know which couple is which. And what is more, we'd probably be able to project fairly accurately what the video into the next couple of years is likely to look like. And so just we have to get used to this idea of a video, not snapshot. And so uh, we take a look at, um, at the current conditions of population and economy, shall we? Let's see Russia. Now, to, and just to give you a, uh, uh, some perspective, as you know, the population of the United States is around 300 million. Okay, slightly over that, but in the numbers we're talking, yeah, it's good enough, rounding errors. Uh, 300 million people in the United States of America. How about in Russia? Okay, what is, what is the population of Russia? Well, it's um, actually less than that. Would you believe? Would you believe, 145 million? That's right. Russia, 145 million. United States, 300 million. How about the size of economies? That helps. Oh, what, you know, while we're looking at population, um, Russia, less than half of ours, 140 million. America, 300 million. How about China? China, 1,300 million, right? 1.3 billion is another way of saying that. But if we're going to be looking at it in millions, 140 million Russia, America, 300 million, China, 1,300 million. So the, the proportions are 140, 300, and 1,300. Okay, that just to, to see things in perspective. How about uh, economy size? Uh, Russia, 4 trillion. America, about 20 trillion. Five times the economy of Russia. China, 12 trillion. But now is the time to watch the video rather than the snapshot. Because if you look at a snapshot and you see uh, Russia, 4 China, 12. United States, 20. That's in trillion dollars. Four, 12, 20. Right? That's Russia, 4. China, 12. United States, 20. You say to yourself, we got nothing to worry about. We're kings of the world. But remember the video? What we've got to do is look and see what the growth slope looks like on a graph for Russia, for America, and the United States. And such a growth chart would show you very quickly that Russia, yeah, ups and downs, but not departing very far from uh, the four trillion level mark. Up here a bit, down there a little bit, but nothing really exciting happening. United States, 
Um, very, very slow. Period of flat. Obama years, pretty flat. Uh, slightly down at points. Uh, now slightly up. But we haven't moved off that 20 trillion figure for quite a while. What do you think the China graph looks like? Can you predict it? I suspect you probably can. It looks like a Swiss mountainside. It's a steep upward climb. As a matter of fact, it's quite easy to predict that China's economy, barring anything unforeseen, which is <laughs> always a bad idea, but barring anything unforeseen, China's economy outstrips America's. When exactly? Uh, well, that's hard to know because rate of growth is important. But one thing is clear, and that is that all the naysayers you used to hear, oh, China doesn't have this and China's got that, you'd nothing to worry about, they're not going to be able to sustain their level of growth. Well, that was said when they were six, seven, and eight trillion. They're now 12 trillion and they continue to grow. So, um, snapshot, forget it, doesn't tell you anything useful. Video, well, video is a different story. Video suggests that Russia is largely irrelevant for our concerns, but China, incredibly relevant. Okay? Important to understand that. Now, I, I hope you agree that there is an enormous advantage to living, raising your family, starting your business in a society which has a strong economy. There's an enormous advantage to that. And whatever you can do to help your country, to help your nation, to help your society become stronger economically, which also means stronger militarily, by the way, uh, then you would want to do that. Now, population is obviously a factor, as I've said. However, we have not seen that the influx of 6 million and the Middle, Middle East and North African refugees to France helped their economy. On the contrary, it seems to, in the years that they've brought in these immigrants, seems to have hurt it. Same true for one and a half million immigrants to Germany. Same true for disproportionately large numbers of immigrants for small countries like uh, Denmark, Holland, Sweden, and Norway. So clearly, just adding population isn't good enough. I mean, after all, there are countries in Africa with very large populations, and even when money is poured in in huge amounts to help develop the economy, nothing happens. Um, countries with big populations like Indonesia and the Philippines, they've got resources there. Um, they've even got a somewhat educated population, but development just not happening there. What, what, what's going on there? And um, uh, how about the fact that in the Philippines, ethnic Chinese account for less than 2% of the population, but control 60% of the nation's private economy, including the country's four major airlines, all of the banks, hotels, and shopping malls in the Philippines are owned by ethnic Chinese. Um, how come uh, other parts of Southeast Asia, Thailand, Burma, Malaysia, right? Chinese uh, expats distinguish themselves by disproportionate economic success, right? That's important to note. Something, it's, it's not just population. What else are we talking about? Um, you've got 
you've got dominant minorities like the Chinese, 2% of the Philippines, and yet basically own everything. And by the way, the Filipinos resent that, needless to say. But um, uh, Lebanese, the Lebanese folks uh, came to parts of West Africa, dominated and um, and have also, have also produced some resentment, not surprisingly. Look, it's something Jews know a lot about. Um, Indians came to East Africa and, uh, and eventually got tossed out because they were doing so well. Do you think East Africa did better without the Indians? No, of course they did much worse. How about the fact right after the privatization of public resources uh, in the Soviet Union, not that long ago, uh, seven billionaires were immediately came into being. Six of them were Jewish. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? We should point it out. Something is interesting. Uh, something is clearly going on there. Right? Some groups seem to have a money-making ability, and it's not a gene, I'll tell you that, because it's nothing racial. Um, and uh, obviously, if you have a large population of those kinds of people, that is obviously going to outperform an even larger population of people who don't have that. Would you, would you not agree? Right? It's obviously there's something going on here. Uh, England clearly had it in, uh, in, in huge quantities because although their population was small, they were able to build an empire which lasted until Germany with a bigger population started World War II. Why am I interested in this? Because, look, uh, if you want to help your country's economy – then there's not much you can do about the population, right? Although there it is, in spite of the fact that a number of countries have um, governments that are trying uh, pro-natalist policies. They're trying policies to make women have more children. Uh, one of the things they try and do is, uh, is forced employer-provided child care, forced employer-provided maternity leave. And uh, the funny thing is that countries that have been doing this are not able to point to any higher fertility rates. They haven't been able to change their population at all. And so let's imagine that you would like to see your country become more economically viable, stronger. The odds of you being able to increase this population, not very good. And if you did increase it by immigration – you're actually going to hurt it, not help it, as all the evidence from Europe shows. So, although, by the way, I, I admit we, we, don't, we have correlation, not causality. However, once you know what the other factors of an economy's strength are, well, then it does change to correlation and causation. And you see that bringing in huge numbers of immigrants does not help. In fact, it hurts the economy. So if you're not going to be able to do anything about population – what can you do something about? And the answer is the other two factors. Remember I told you the strength of an economy is not just population. Population is the first but not necessarily the most important. There are another two, another two factors that impact the strength of a country's economy. And when I tell you what those are, well, I think you'll be able to see that something can be done about those things. And – to segue perhaps a little too smoothly into the 
American Alliance of Jews and Christians summer appeal, uh, that is exactly what the AAJC is doing. Our website is aajc.org, and if your heart calls you to make a gift to further the work of the American Alliance of Jews and Christians, head over to aajc.org and express your generosity. You will have enormous appreciation, not only from those of us working at the AJC, but from those organizations around the country with whom we ally to strengthen the foundation of civilization. That's what we're doing at aajc.org. Uh, your rabbi, back with you in just a moment as we look at what are these other two factors, factors that impact an economy and factors that maybe, yes, we can actually do something about. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lapin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. Thank you for being back here for the third segment of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show this week. Appreciate it, as I appreciate your helping to promote the show. I, I try and remember to thank you every week uh, because so many of you are actively helping to pass the word around on the show. Uh, very much appreciated. Population is a positive thing, right? That's what I'm talking about. And so obviously, the more people that uh, listen to a show, the more effective it is. And so, uh, again, those of you who tell other people about it, who, who send a URL around or who promote the Facebook or the Twitter link. And uh, by the way, in case you haven't connected via social media with me on Facebook, it's You Need a Rabbi, and at, on Twitter, it's at Daniel Lappin. So those are the two things. Uh, Facebook, at You Need a Rabbi, Y-O-U-N-E-E-D, You Need a Rabbi, and on Twitter, it's um, at Daniel Lappin. At any rate, the, the, when the show is, is uh, published or posted, there's always a notification of that on Twitter and on Facebook, and you can send that. You can link and, and uh, pass it on to other people, which I appreciate. And also, if you are on the mailing list, which you can do at our website, uh, which is rabbidaniellappin.com, then you will get a notification when the show uh, pay, posts. And there's a post over the weekend every week. And you'll usually get a notification on you know, Sunday or Monday thereabouts uh, reminding you uh, that the show is up and that you can hear it. Okay, so uh, it's clearly a good thing to be in a country with a strong economy. Firstly, it makes you safer. And secondly, it makes you more prosperous. You can spend less time making the living needed and more time on family and faith and things that, that count uh, than you can if you are in a society that, that has a struggling economy where you, in turn, will have to struggle to make your living. So clearly a good thing. Clearly anything you can do to improve your country's economy is something you would want to do. 
Now, you can't really do much about changing the population of your country, but population is far from the only factor. There are many countries with large populations, like Somalia, for instance, um, whose um, who, whose gross domestic product is is pretty bad, way down. So uh, actually, you know, it would be useful to take a quick look at some of the interesting aspects of the GDP figures around the the world. In other words, let's take a look at the list in order of GDP. Let's look at a list in order of the size of the effectiveness of economies, gross domestic product, as we go around uh, the entire world. Um, there's several sets of figures available. You could use the International Monetary Fund has one set. The World Bank has another set. Uh, the United Nations has their own. Um, the truth is that for all the countries I'm going to quote, the three sources are within a point or two of each other. So it, I, I don't think it much matters. Okay, so um, up at number two, the second uh, is Switzerland. Um, there are 187 uh, countries on the list, so obviously I'm not doing them all, but I'm just going to highlight a couple of interesting ones. Uh, so Switzerland is at number two. The United States is number seven. And Israel is number 20. And tucked in there in that top 20, along with Switzerland and the United States and Israel, New Zealand, Germany, uh, Canada, they're all up in there. Then it starts dropping pretty quickly. And you get to Jordan at number 90, 90th size economy in the, in the world. Zimbabwe, 155. Uganda, 175. You see what I mean, right? It, it sort of goes way down there, way down. Uh, Singapore is number 12. Holland is number 15. Germany is 17, Israel is 20. And then after that, after lower than all of those, lower than Israel, below number 20, you've got the United Kingdom, France, Japan, Italy, Spain, South Korea, Taiwan. That's right, those are all down. And then when you come to the lowest tier, and you are looking at countries whose gross domestic product is about 1% of mid and upper tier countries. And you get all the way down to Somalia, which is number 187. It's interesting. So the fact that Israel is so high on the list, well, what's, I'm, you know, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm very sorry, I, I misled, I think I said we're talking GDP, we're not, we're talking per capita GB, GDP, I'm so sorry. Uh, obviously, Israel doesn't have a GDP uh, the size of, uh, uh, you know, shall we say, um, the United Kingdom? Well, actually, it may do, but um, no, I'm sorry. The, what I'm giving you is the, the International Monetary Fund of the World Bank United Nations figures for average uh, domestic product per capita. In other words, what is the average amount of money created by each citizen in the country? Obviously, some do a whole lot more, some do a whole lot less, but in other words, it's GDP divided by population. That's what we're looking at here. Because... What I'm trying to get at now is how do you improve a country's economy? Well, you do whatever you can to have a good population. And then 
you try and make sure that everyone in that population is very, very productive. What you're looking for is average per capita. You want to raise that as much as possible so as that the gross domestic product, the total aggregate of everybody in the country is huge. That's what we're looking for. So um, you get a little bit of a clue when you see that a little country like Israel, tiny little country, has an average per capita domestic product. In other words, the average Israeli is creating more wealth than the average citizen of the United Kingdom, of France, of Japan, or of Italy, or of Spain, or of South Korea, or of Taiwan. So Israel is very high up. Now, they've only got 5 million people, so obviously you figure it out. But the, the telling number here is the average. So as we've already seen, we do have countries that have large populations, but very, very low per capita domestic product, uh, very low. So those countries do not have a lot of money. And then you've got small countries like Israel and other countries who have a, um, a very productive population, even though the population is small. So their gross domestic product, their national economic power is really very impressive. And so, as I said, because we can't do a whole lot about a country's population, what we can do something about is the other factors, the factors that make it possible for each person in that population to be super productive. What are those factors? Well, there are three of them, and uh, I'm going to go through them with you now because you'll see that when you raise your children, you are probably raising them with all these three things right now. But the problem is not everyone in the United States of America is doing so. That's the problem. And as a larger and larger proportion of children born are going to be raised without these three qualities, well, then remembering the video versus snapshot rule things would not be looking too good. Okay, so what are these three things? Number one is education. Now, my friends, I'm talking here about genuine education. You've got to understand that I'm talking about genuine education, not inflated qualifications, not meaningless degrees in pseudo-subjects, right? If you've got a whole lot of people in the population who have doctoral degrees in middle period Etruscan pottery, in gender studies, in racism, in English literature. Okay, I'm afraid that's not helping very much. We're talking about genuine education, people who are good at math, people who are good at communication, who can speak English, who can write English, can read English with good grammar, uh, people who, who read fluently and do read a lot. That's what we're, ta we're talking about, education, real education, not what passes for education in America's tragically destroyed educational system. So number one is education. Number two is very interesting. Number two is the connectivity of the population. And this is where places like uh, Israel do very well. Connectivity of the population means that the population is able to, it has the ability to communicate and it cross-pollinates 
and it has a, uh, a common language and shared values. All of that's very important because just think about it. Let's imagine you are a sales professional at your company and uh, you discover a, a fantastic new way of presenting the benefits of one of the products or services you sell for your company. Now, the interests of the company would be best served if you convey that information to everybody else on the sales team. The best interests of the company would be served if you went to your sales manager and said, call a meeting. I've got something we've got to share. Everyone's got to have access. This is a fantastically effective way of highlighting and marketing the product through its benefits that nobody realizes. Uh, one of our customers helped me see it, and since then I've been soaring. I'm airborne. I want to share it. Okay, well, the reality is that most people will feel a strong resistance to doing that. Most of us are going to say to ourselves, eh, you know, um, I'm going to keep my advantage to myself. I'm not going to share it with other people. Why should I? At the moment, my sales figures look great. Let's leave it at that. That's what a lot of us would do. Now, what would be the likeliest exception? What would possibly make you? Well, if uh, your brother was on another team, you might want to share it if you're close to your brother. If you have a really close friend, somebody you see and you communicate with regularly and you share values and, and you just, you're as close as could be, wouldn't you want to share it? So that, that is an example that maybe uh, provides a little insight into why it is that if you are part of a culture where people do communicate and there's cross-pollination and there's shared values and there's a common language, yeah, yeah, that, that's right, that's good. You do see using the uh, snapshot versus video model, you do see that a United States that for the last 50 years has been promoting multiculturalism and a United States that has people who are now people who have been immigrants who came to the United States more than 10 years ago who still cannot read English. I don't know what the numbers are, but it's high. You realize that that's obviously a problem where, uh, where every time you call a company and they tell you in Spanish, if you want this message on the, uh, on the voicemail, if you want it in Spanish, press a number, then you know in time this is not going to be good. This is diminishing the ability of your society to communicate. Um, a fam in a family, connectivity is a wonderful thing, but it helps when there are shared values, when everybody is on the same page where everyone is singing from the same song sheet. And so countries, and again, you can look at Israel, and you see, first of all, it's a small country. Everybody serves in the army, so people all get to know one another. And you know, later on, you, you knock on the door for an interview for a job, and the guy interviews you and says, you know, well, where did you serve in the army? You tell him, he's, oh, me too, or my brother did as well, and you've got an instant connection. Uh, sometimes you use the army to make those connections in the first place. So that's an enormously helpful thing. Small country, same religion, same language, same sense of values, you know, the, the importance of making sure the country survives in, in the face of uh, implacable hostility from the surrounding countries. All of these things help make Israel's tiny 5 million population astonishingly effective. Because they do have communication and cross-pollination, common language, common values, all very important, very helpful. Obviously, 
as a society loses those common values, loses a common language, you are looking at a huge blow being struck against that country's ability to build a successful, thriving economy. It's hard to believe, but it's massively important. And then we come to number three, perhaps the hardest, the most important, and the one that currently threatens the United States so very seriously. Let me tell that to you coming back. But first of all, uh, a reminder, we are in our summer fundraising appeal for the American Alliance of Jews and Christians. And if you are in any way uh, in agreement with the kind of things that I've been talking about on this show and on other shows, um, if you feel a pull to in any way play a small part in helping to grow these values, if you see the importance of Jews and Christians standing shoulder to shoulder to stand up against the barbarism and secularism of a world gone mad, then perhaps you would try and support the work we do at the American Alliance of Jews and Christians. Uh, just go to aajc.org and read up more about what we do at the American Alliance of Jews and Christians. And again, uh, if you feel called to support, we would be enormously grateful, as would all those groups with whom we ally, to build bridges between Jews and Christians and to equip all of us with everything we need to defeat the attempts by secular fundamentalism and Islamic barbarism to destroy everything that Western civilization has built. All of that at aajc.org. Back with you in just a moment. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lapping On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Bill O'Reilly on the Glenn Beck Program. There is a culture at CNN that demands you be disrespectful to Donald Trump. I talked to a CNN person this week, and I said, can you name one person on your network, one in a position of visibility, anchor, high-profile reporter, who's even moderate toward Donald Trump? And there was silence. There is not anyone, not one human being working for the corporation that is even moderate to the man. The culture is get him. Bill O'Reilly on the Glenn Beck Program. We now return to Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. We're back again for the fourth and I'm sorry to say final segment of today's Rabbi Daniel Lappin show. And um, I'm going to tell you something which we are very thoroughly indoctrinated to reject. I'm going to tell you something that we rebel at. Uh, many people would find it repugnant to even hear. People would read into what I'm going to say uh, repellent attitudes that are simply not there. They just don't exist. But that's what they're going to hear. What I'm going to say is, that there is a huge difference between high-quality people and low-quality people. It has, I mean, I've, it's stupid that I issue this caveat. I shouldn't even really have to do it, and I probably don't have to do it. Uh, but needless to say, 
when I speak of high-quality people and low-quality people, I'm not talking of skin color. I'm not talking of gender. I'm not talking of uh, bank account size. No! I'm talking about intrinsic qualities of human greatness. Some have it and some don't. And the reason it is so relevant to this conversation is that we're speaking about the factors that make for a country's economy. And we covered the simplest, obviously, which is uh, population size. And then we covered the next one, which is not quite as simple, but uh, at least we, uh, we were able to talk about it, <coughs> um, education. And then we spoke, and, and remember I said it was genuine education. Uh, it was knowing things about physics and about biology and about chemistry and about arithmetic and about English communication, all of those real things. So uh, when you've got a population, all right, that's great. The next thing we've got to make sure is it's educated. The next thing we've got to do is make sure that uh, there is connectivity there, that there is a mechanism for people to get together with one another, communication, cross-pollination, common language, shared values. Uh, in the old Soviet Union, for instance, it didn't happen because people were frightened to talk to each other. And so, obviously, it had to collapse economically because if you not only make it hard, but you make it dangerous for people to connect with one another, they won't do it. And if people don't connect with one another, money cannot be made. I probably don't have to tell you, like, you, you've all read Thou Shall Prosper, right? You've all read Business Secrets from the Bible. You've all read probably, I don't know, by now, hundreds of thought tools, which you can read by buying books of collections of them at our website or reading them on the website. But uh, you already know that money cannot be made just by a computer. It requires one human being interacting with another. They can connect by a meal, sharing a meal, or over the Internet, or over the uh, telegraph, or, or through two cans connected by a piece of string, whatever, it doesn't matter. But when two people make a transaction, which they can only do when they come to an agreement with one another, which they can only do after they communicate with one another, um, in other words, you will do best financially the more people who know you, like you, and trust you. That's when you'll do well. And so, uh, obviously, uh, communication is a crucial part of it. What is the third and final uh, one and the most challenging and the most difficult? Well, this has to do with the quality of the people. What does quality mean? Well, it's not what you might think, but it has to do with, okay, a number of things. Here they go. Number one, it has to do with wisdom. Okay, uh, what is wisdom? Is wisdom IQ? Not at all. IQ is a measure of how quickly you can process things, how quickly your brain works. But there's really not a big difference between a person with a 94 IQ and a person with 130 IQ. Oh, the person with 130 IQ uh, will be able to puzzle through problems quickly and write code and probably make it onto the faculty of a university. But in terms of doing well, making money, building a family, living successfully, yeah, an average IQ is all you need. No, we're not talking. We're talking about quality of human being. Now, that's important. IQ, not nearly as important. 
What is important? Well, wisdom. What is wisdom? Well, wisdom is understanding how the world really works. That, that's what wisdom is. Wisdom is understanding that in spite of the impressive pedigrees and uh, prominence and prestige and academic qualifications that people have when they tell you that men and women are exactly the same, and when they tell you that uh, in due course just as many women will propose marriage to men as men currently propose to women, and uh, when they tell you these kinds of things and you're able to say, look, I'm not going to antagonize that person, but I'm not going to waste any more time with them. They're talking utter and complete bilge water. I'm out of here. That would be a, a signal of being wise. If you understand that uh, with children, when you're raising your children, discipline is important, then you're wise. If you understand that constantly trying to stop your children from crying by giving in to their requests or demands, bad idea, okay, then you're wise. Uh, and there are, as you know, you can make your own list of hundreds of examples of what being wise is. So uh, high-quality people are wise. High-quality people have an inbuilt culture of self-discipline. High-quality people are able to say, I will do this before I go to bed tonight, and they get it done. High-quality people are able to discipline themselves to keep their weight where they want it. High-quality people have the self-discipline to not do things that their mind knows to be unhealthy, either for their bodies or for their souls. In other words, something we touched on uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, something which you will also find dealt with at length in an audio program on my website at rabbidaniellappin.com. The audio program is called The uh, Gathering Storm, Decoding the Secrets of Noah. What this has to do with is the idea that uh, in Hebrew, the word for royalty is the acronym for brain, emotions, bodily appetites, in that order. The uh, reverse of that in Hebrew, is the word that is the opposite of royalty, which means uh, embarrassment, mortification, cal calumny. Uh, that word is an acronym for bodily appetites, emotion, and brain in that order. And that gives us, uh, and it's something I covered a, a little while ago on this show a few weeks back. Uh, this again tells us what's a high-quality person. A high-quality person is somebody who runs his life and makes important decisions, or hers, on the basis of, first of all, what your head tells you should happen, secondly, emotionally, and only thirdly, bodily appetites. A low-quality person, regardless of the economic status of the person, regardless of their gender, regardless of their color, regardless of anything at all, a low-quality person is somebody who responds to any appetite their body calls for, uh, whichever hormones or... Uh, uh, enzymes call for you to do something or take someone or eat something, whatever it is, if that is the most compelling call that your being responds to, you know that you are a low-quality person. If you make important decisions on the basis of emotions, 
if you uh, decide the criminal justice system on emotions, if you decide politics, if you decide immigration policy, if you decide how to raise your family, if you decide how to run your business on emotional bases, you are a low-quality person, and you will pay the price eventually. Uh, those are the, the key definitions. Uh, if you can defer gratification, right? I've, it, I've, I've kind of already said that in these things I've already done when I explain quality people. But uh, deferment gratification is so important, and again, that it's worth just emphasizing all on its own. A high-quality person can defer gratification. That sometimes means um, staying in school. It means not getting involved and having a child till you married. Uh, it means pleasing your boss. Um, it's doing all kinds of things that do not provide immediate gratification. If you can resist the call of immediate gratification, you are a high-quality person. If you have impulse control, again, that's covered in the um, mind, brain, emotion, body lineup, if you run your life making important decisions on the basis of head, not heart, head, not body, then you're a high-quality person. Part of that is impulse control. Impulse control, and I, I do believe, by the way, there are a lot of people in American society at the moment who have no impulse control. Um, what do I mean by that? Violence, inflicting violence on somebody when an argument escalates from verbal to violent, then you have somebody who doesn't have impulse control. I really do think that there's a lot of people in the country who have so little impulse control that they literally do not even recognize the boundary between verbal and violent. Uh, when our children were small, uh, we eliminated the arguments. You know, when there'd be a fight and say, well, he hit me. Well, he pushed me first. Well, yeah, but he first touched me. Uh, and yeah, but it didn't hurt. You hurt me. I didn't hurt you. We eliminated all of that by having a simple rule. Physical touch changes the rule. The boundary is physical touch. We're never going to enter into a debate on the subjective questions of whether the push hurt you or didn't hurt you. A, who touches, B, is now culpable for whatever happens afterwards because you started it. And there was a case recently in Florida which has a stand-your-ground law. Um, somebody uh, yelled at a woman who was abusing a, um, uh, a handicapped parking zone. Whether this person should have or shouldn't have is beside the point. I you know, could have said it's none of his business. But this woman's in the car, obviously no handicap there, and parked in a handicap thing. So this person says, "Get move your car, you shouldn't be parking in a handicap. So her boyfriend comes out of the store and says, what's going on? And she yells, oh, he's yelling at me, he's shouting at me about parking here. So the guy goes over to the person who uh, was verbal, gives him a huge shove onto the ground. How do we know? Because uh, security footage from the store's cameras are all over the Internet. And uh, he shoves the person onto the ground. And then he walks towards him and towers over him threateningly. The guy on the ground pulls out a gun for which he has a legal permit and shoots his asylum dead. And uh, everybody's emotional about it. Oh, this, is, this Florida stand-your-ground law is a... Uh, permission to murder. No, it isn't. That guy made a fatal mistake. He escalated a verbal into a violent. There's a huge difference. 
he could have yelled as much as he liked at the first guy. He could have uh, he could have yelled at him. He could have cursed him. He could whatever he wanted. He could have done. But the minute he threw him onto the ground, the rules change. And now, as long as the person on the ground felt threatened, which I think he had every right to do, in my view, from what I can see of the camera, uh, he, he shot the guy dead. Sad, unfortunate, but if you've got poor impulse control, bad things happen. And um, anger is poor impulse control. Violence, poor impulse control. Um, very often using certain types of language. Don't do you any good, bad impulse control. I'm trying to give you a, as clear an idea as I possibly can of what quality people are all about. And a, an economy works best when you have a large population with a large percentage, if not everybody, being high quality. People have a work ethic, people who are future-oriented, all of these are very important parts of quality. When we use the, the word social capital, that's what we're talking about. All right? Education, that's covered. Connectivity of people, common language, common values, um, interest in one another, um, social strife, all of that is covered. Third one is what we call social capital. And that's what I've been talking about, brain over emotions, brain and emotions over body, uh, self-discipline, impulse control, um, deferment of gratification, a sense of value in the common good. Um, all of those are very important. And uh, this is why it is when um, Max Weber, who was a, uh, a fantastic German economist in the, I think, the uh, mid-1800s, I haven't got his, his uh, years right in front of me right now, but uh, when uh, Max Weber wrote uh, the, um, what was it called? The Protestant Ethic. It was called The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. That's right. Uh, you know what? It, it wasn't 19. It was actually, it was actually the early 20th century. Um, and so that's, that went, that's what he meant when he said the, uh, the, the Protestant Ethic and the Wealth of Nations. This is exactly what he's talking about. That population is very important, but the quality of the people is even more important. When the quality of the people is high, then it can really build a fantastically vibrant and successful economy. Good for security, good for prosperity, good for everything. But it's quality of people. So Max Weber wrote the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. Uh, by the way, before that, uh, Adam Smith in 1776 wrote his classic Wealth of Nations, Wealth of the Nations, actually, is the correct title. And uh, there he spoke about, well, if everybody just follows his own self-interests, everything will work well. And then he thought about it, and he said, you know, that's not enough. That doesn't do it. So then he wrote The Theory of Moral Sentiments, and that's where he covers these things that I'm talking about, the quality of human beings. Uh, and look, many other people, John Stuart Mill, spoke about these things uh, a little bit later than that. It, it, you know, I'm not inventing this. Um, when Landis wrote about the wealth of nations, I mean, everybody gets that, and this is one of the reasons that economics is often spoken of as the dismal science, because the qualities that I'm speaking about, the things that make for high-quality people, are spiritual. They're not physical. That's the whole point. Do you get it? 
They're spiritual, not physical. It's hugely important. And so uh, economics and econometrics have no way of measuring these things. So, and yet they have enormous impact when you're trying to understand the economy of a group of people or a society or an organization. Maybe we're talking about your business or your family. The quality of the human beings matters so much. And we've got to understand what quality of human beings means. Don't listen to the people with PhDs who'll tell you that none of these things matter and everybody's the same and all values are interchangeable. It's simply not true. Surely the essence of being educated is being able to say, you know what, this works better than that. We do it in medicine. We do it in physics. We do it in uh, chemistry. We do it in, in electronics. We do it in mathematics. We do it in economics. Sure, we say all the time, this business model works better than that business model. You have uh, very well-paid business consultants who, who come along and tell a company, this is what you should do. They, sh they could say, well, wait a second. Our PhD in philosophy told us that all ways are the same. It's not true. It simply isn't the case. And neither is it the, in the case when we talk about the quality of human beings. The implications of what I've told you in this segment are so huge that I think I'm going to leave it right here and let you dwell upon it and think about how much is done for a society's success by organizations and by institutions that build the social capital of a society, build the quality of the people. And you can see, obviously, that simply bringing in immigrants from Middle East, North Africa, into the United States or Germany or Sweden or Denmark or Holland on the basis of, well, the more people, the better. I'm afraid it's not true. If you bring in high-quality people, oh, it'll be fantastic. Trouble is, most high-quality people or many high-quality people aren't really looking to move because high-quality people succeed almost wherever they are. It's not entirely true, but it's largely true. Uh, if you bring in average, medium-quality people, well, they're not going to help, but they probably won't hurt either. But if you bring in a lot of low-quality people, uh, they're going to tend to be low-quality people are lazy, right? They don't have the self-discipline. They don't have the impulse control. They are likely to exploit the welfare system availability of Sweden or Denmark or Holland or Norway or the United States, not going to help to build the economy. It's going to hurt it. High-quality people build the economy. Average-quality people don't help, don't hinder. Low-quality people hurt and harm the economy. Yes, my friends, it is important to be able to evaluate the quality of people. And you know which person it is the most important thing to be able to evaluate? You got it. person with the same name as you whose picture's on your driving license. Evaluating ourselves is the most important thing of all. What is our level of quality as human beings? How do we rate on these important things I've discussed? Think about it. It's a fantastic way to enhance your life and the lives of those around you. Any help that you would be willing to supply to the American Alliance of Jews and Christians would be very appreciated. The website is aajc.org. That's right, www.aajc, American Alliance of Jews and Christians.org. 
and you can read more about it. And uh, if you feel yourself in any way pulled, if your heart tugs you towards supporting an organization that works with many other organizations around the country in trying to build up our quality as a people, that tries to restore the underlying strength of our civilization by building an organization of Jews and Christians standing together, your support would be obviously enormously valuable, very appreciated by all of us. Uh, so visit aajc.org. And that takes us, unfortunately, as far as we can go this week. Thank you very much indeed for being part of the show. I appreciate you being there. appreciate you listening. I love to hear a response from the show, by the way. I love to hear what you think about it. So you can do that on Facebook. You can do it on, on Twitter, wherever you like, or on our website. All of that. I uh, love hearing from you. Thank you very much indeed. Until we're together next week, I wish you a week of good health and prosperity. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.